Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show on the choose yourself network today on the james altucher show Fake it till you make it. What a terrible message, right? It's, it already has the word fake in it. No one wants to be fake. This has nothing to do with being inauthentic. This is about actually drawing out who you are because we're super multi-layered. I mean, who you think you are today and who you're going to be nine months from now is probably going to be a slightly different person. So are you being fake today because you're not that person nine months from now? Of course, that doesn't make sense. What you're tapping into is the only superpower that human beings really do have. The only thing that truly does separate us on this planet from other animals is our creative imagination. Our ability to tell stories in our own head, to build narrative, to create heavens from hell or hell from heaven. We have that capacity more than anyone or anything else. And it's useful for people to think that if there's a two-circle Venn diagram, there's, there's who you are right now and maybe who you want to become or, or what you want to be happening right now. And they're not quite overlapped. And, and maybe using an alter ego can be the one thing that brings those two together because we all need allies, in fact. It's most helpful if we have a trusted ally inside our mind between the six inches of our ears. I know this technique works and I agree with you. I don't, you know, there's all these article after article after article like, you know, make your bed in the morning, do this, do that. Yeah. And it's important, of course, to be healthy, like to be able to succeed, but I think This alter ego idea is what pushes someone over the top. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've got Todd Herman here. He's the author of The Alter Ego Effect, but more importantly, he is a high performance, I'll say peak performance coach for... Everybody ranging from Olympic athletes to all sorts of athletes to CEOs, entrepreneurs, businessmen. What are Todd? First, welcome to the show. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> I like the title, "The Alter Ego Effect," and I also like the book. Yeah, I'll get to why in a in a few minutes. Uh, great book. Uh, it's essentially, if you don't mind, I'll describe it. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. No, you do it. Uh, essentially, when you're going into a, a high stakes uh, event, like let's say you're doing a sales meeting, or even if you're asking for a higher salary or promotion, or if you're going to compete in an Olympic event or whatever, you often can improve performance by taking on an alter ego, like a, like having like almost a a superhero version of yourself. Yeah. And in the, while I'm reading the book, I'm even thinking you sort of, 
you're describing in many ways, you're putting yourself inside the arc of the hero where the high stakes event is kind of the end of the story mm-hmm. and you're that superhero mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll talk in, in, in a little bit on the specifics of that, um, but what are, some of the, what are some of the famous clients you've had? Well, like, like I said at the beginning of the book, the one thing that has been able to sustain my career for as long as I have, especially now in the day and age where um, everybody wants a piece of a celebrity or an athlete. Like they, and for me, in order to do my work well, I need 100% trust. And my mentor back in 2001 told me that with the trend that he was seeing in sport and media, that if he was going to do his career over again and starting then, he would make sure that he didn't share who he was working with so that he could make sure that those clients felt like they, I, that he was truly invested only in their best interest. So I never share who I actually work with on the sports side, even on the business side, I really don't. But I've worked with anywhere from um, players that are competing on the PGA on Sundays to try to you know sink the putt to win the um, tournament to NBA players, NFL, um, soccer players over in Europe. I've worked with teams like the New York Knicks, Real Madrid, um, uh, New York And like Giants. when you work for, for a team like yeah. the New York Knicks, do they call you in and you give um, like a speech about what the alter yeah. ego is? And- yeah, so I'll come in and do not just on the alter ego. So the alter ego effect was one of my main tools definitely that I would use to help athletes get out of their own way so that they can actually have all their capabilities show up on the field of play, whatever that might be for them. Because again, nothing's more frustrating than when you hit your uh, head on the pillow at the end of the night and you're like, why didn't I say that? Why didn't I do that? Why didn't I take that shot? Why did I pass it? And so many people you know, end up leading lives that way because they get caught up in their own head. And you know, the word that is the one that I kind of bring up because it's kind of a catch-all phrase is resistance. Just resistance, however it might come up with some people. But um, yeah, so I'll come in and I'll do some sort of workshop training with them. Um, but I've always operated as an outsider. I never want the team to bring me in as one of their coaches. I'm doing air quotes here, mm-hmm. <laughs> coaches, so to speak, because um, in the way that sport works nowadays, there is a big division between the athlete and the team itself because um, any coach that's giving you advice, a lot of athletes will go, yeah, but are they, is he saying that because the team is telling him to say that so that I end up staying and signing a lesser contract? Like all that stuff is narrative going on in this. And like, it's a real um, uh, mind cluster fudge, I'll say that, for uh, for the athlete. So I always stay on the outside periphery. I'm, uh, is that is that what happens though? Is there kind of like mind games between, like the coach oh. ultimately wants the best performance out of the player. Yeah. But at some points, do they kind of talk down to the player when negotiation is happening? There's all sorts of those things that are happening all the time. I guess because um, it's really high stakes. You're talking tens of millions of dollars. Tens of millions of dollars. Or there's there's even instances where they're not even fielding them on um, the starting lineup or they're pulling them out of games because they have a bonus target that's about to be hit. And if that person hits, you know, if they stay in the game for an even you know, 25 more minutes, that means they're going to hit their uh, their bonus of mm. playing, you know, eighteen hundred and sixty five minutes this year, injury free, mm. and so they'll like it's it's never ending nowadays for them. So it seems also like, you know, I think I think for myself, a lot of times I get into a high stakes situation, and I'm too nervous mm-hmm. what the other side is thinking. Yeah, when I'm reading the book, I'm thinking to myself, these are good techniques to yeah. kind of. You perform better when you're not dragged down by thinking about what other people are thinking always. Yeah. yeah. So, so it seems like these are good techniques for for dealing with that. Absolutely. Like so, yeah, we're talking about you know pro athletes or Olympic athletes or business people, but this is a universal strategy that um, I'm talking about. We all play with an alter ego or a secret identity. It's a part of the human psyche. I mean, it's it's what we did when we were children, when we were pretending to be our favorite athlete or our favorite scientist when we're doing something or our favorite. Um, sports star, superhero, you name it, or when we're pretending to be a cowboy fireman, we're, we're just wearing these different ideas in our minds to see what works, like what we like to play with. Um, and uh, you know, to your to your point, um, it's it's not uncommon for many people to be always worried about what other people are thinking of them. That judgment, the criticism, it's like baked into the kind of evolution of being a human being and where we come from. But when we're trying to get the best out of ourselves, the moment that your thinking goes um, away from what you can control and what you can do, which is the process, and it goes on to 
worried about what other people are thinking, the outcome of a game, even the outcome of the, like if you go in and you're only thinking about, you know, winning the deal or closing the deal, you're going to miss most likely many of the buying signals of, and, and you might end up outselling yourself. Like where it's like the guy was ready at 10 minutes in and you kept on talking and you talked yourself out of a deal. I did that early on. I was a terrible salesperson. What happened? Tell, tell me about when you did it. Well, I came out of the restaurants world. So when I was in university, like many young university kids, I was a waiter. Uh-huh. Um, and I was a, I delivered food. I never was, a, they would not trust me <laughs> carrying food from the kitchen to the table, but I did deliver. You did, like delivered like on a bike or like or a pizza, like, like on a car. <laughs> That's great. Um, uh, I would love to get you to deliver a pizza. That would be amazing. It was really bad. Like the cheese would be all to one side. And uh, but I set up a delivery business. Is what I did was think of seamless. Yeah. But in 1987, and people would call. There was like ten different restaurants, and they would call us up, and um, you know, people would call the restaurants that we 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 handed out menus to everybody. Yeah. People would call the restaurants. The restaurants would call us. We'd pick up the food and deliver it. Of course, you started Uber Eats and Seamless back in 1987. It didn't that work. Means- <laughs> you probably needed the online component to make it work. Yeah. Um, so, uh, getting back to this, so, um, but you're, when, you're I, when, I was in, when I was in restaurants, um, you know, being outgoing and gregarious and talking up your uh, your tables and all that helped you earn tips, right? So, you know, more likable that you are, and you you know still got to deliver good food. Um, but it would always help with making money. And then when I got into sales, because I get, you know, these sales managers come in and they'd be like trying to recruit me and they're like, you'd be great in sales. So I went out and I tried to apply the same skills and it was terribly, I was horrible. I actually got fired from my first two sales jobs because of how bad I was because I was so concerned going in cold at getting people to like me. Um, going in cold, like, what what was the type of sales? Like, were you not? I was doing doors? Xerox door to door, selling photocopiers and printers. So it's almost like like, and this is we haven't actually talked specifically about yeah the alter ego effect, but people could start to picture if I was to do cold sales, I'm very shy. I would not be able me as James Altucher would yeah. not be able to knock on the door and say, "Excuse me, can you listen for a few minutes?" Yeah, I'd have to like. You know, be something I was not. Like, you know, yeah. hey, I've got the perfect answer for your problems. Yeah, just listen for a few seconds. I I don't know what I would do, but I couldn't be myself. I would have well, to take on a persona. Yeah. So, what what I talk about in the book is a systematic, like a there's a process that we use to to leverage this idea. Which the great thing about it is, once people hear about it, they're like, oh yeah, yeah I understand that. And then when they see the depth of actually how much using this thing really impacts your level of self-efficacy, your confidence in yourself, all that um, stuff that helps you get out there and do bigger and better things. It becomes uh, a skill or a tool that you end up stepping into more because it gets more of yourself out there. Instead of you getting to the end of your comfort zone and stopping, you end up pushing past it consistently because it's not you, quote unquote, doing it. It's not, you don't feel like it's you. It's that inner Superman. It's that, um, you know, in the case of like Bo Jackson that I talk about the first part of the book is he uses Jason from Friday the 13th to actually step into a more controlled, methodical and calculating version of himself instead of this angry version that he used that got him into a lot of trouble. So, you know, it's, it's funny because again, it's not, you, you talk a lot about athletes and, and high performance, but I can think of it in terms of writing too. Like I feel my writing didn't hit a next level until I had a complete persona in there that wasn't, yeah, different from who I was. If anything, as you point out in the book, if, if anything, it was a more authentic version of myself. Exactly. It was just a persona where I really didn't care what anybody was thinking, and that's how you say something new. Yeah, and even if you're a salesperson, you need to say something new that's different than the other hundred people who have knocked on the door. Yeah, or if you're an athlete, you know they know they've trained. You know, professional athletes train for every situation. You have to do something new to to throw the other athletes off if you're going to be the best. Well, I mean. To your what we were talking about earlier, if I'm going into a, to walk into make a sale, and I'm so concerned about what that other pe- group is thinking of me, that a person is thinking of me, it's you know I talk about it in chapter number three. It's what because you're talk, operating from an outside in approach. You're worried about what's happening on the outside world. It creates what I call the trapped self, where you end up doing things for other people or to diminish yourself or to appease other people. 
and you're not actually allowing all of your skills to flow out onto the field of play like you know that you can. Um, and so sometimes tapping into the idea of, you know what, well, how would James Bond approach this? Like just, it, it, it gets you out of your own head and it taps into just something that we all do. The grass is always green on the other side. We take a look at someone else's life and we go, yeah, well, of course he can become a famous entrepreneur because he's not dealing with what I'm dealing with, which is trauma this and narrative this and this family situation or whatever. So if that's the case, if we use grass as greener all on the other side when we're looking at other people, well, then why not tap into that in order to get ourselves out of our own way and step into James Bond or James Altucher in order to go out and execute like we know that we actually can. This is the rub with people is, Many people that are listening right now know they can actually do better than what they might be getting as a result right now. And this isn't about judgment because you're already doing it to yourself anyway. I know this, 16,000 plus hours working with whether high-performing um, people or whether it's just the average Joe or Jessica that's out there, people judge themselves all of the time. I mean, it's one of, your, one of the core messages that you have about choose yourself, right? This is just taking that idea of even choosing yourself and it's like, choose yourself, but maybe you let Superman do that with you. It's about bringing an ally inside your own mind. It's almost like uh, Luke Skywalker, right before he blows up the Death Star, mm -hmm. channels the force, doesn't mm -hmm. need to look at all the equipment that everyone else needs. Yeah. And then boom, he's got this extra yeah. energy. Yeah. Um, let's look at some specific examples. Uh, like, let's say I'm, I'm going to go from small or not so small to you know high peak performance. Let's say someone's going into their boss and asking for a raise in salary. Yeah. They're scared to death. Yeah, yeah. And so, well, in that situation, uh, who would, how would you want to show up when you're there, right? So we already know how you're going to be frustrated with, you're scared to death, which means you're going to bring some part of yourself to that situation that's going to show up meekly. You know, you're not going to really actually ask. They're going to say maybe no once and you're going to, or you're not even going to get to the point where you even ask. But- how would you most want to show up? Or if you could get someone to show up for you, who would that person be? Right, so I'll say, so, so let's say I'm going in to ask my boss for a raise or a promotion. I kind of would want to be like, sort of like Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary on mm -hmm. Shark Tank. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, he's got his facts. Yeah. He, he has to make sure that it's win-win for everyone. People mm -hmm. don't realize that. They think he's like yeah. sort of a one-sided negotiator. Yeah. He's actually looking for just situations that, where he's going to make money and the other side's going to make money. It's yeah. it's win-win for everyone. Yeah. And he's hardcore about it. He's willing to walk away. He's he's willing to kind of stick to the facts and the numbers yeah. and be very firm and uh walk away if it doesn't work out. Yeah. So that's kind of a little bit the the persona I would like to be. Great. Great. So then if that's the case, do you already have your facts together? So I mean, there's just some fundamental skills that you need to bring to the table. What this is not about is someone pretending to be a maxifacial reconstructive surgeon all of a sudden, right? That's not what this is. This is saying that the skills that you already do have, I know for a fact for most people are not actually getting displayed daily for them in the way that they're operating. Right, I think, I think it was, um, I think David Goggins said that basically that when you're exercising in that moment when your body is screaming, mm -hmm. stop, you can usually go another 60% more. Yeah, yeah. And- you know, for one of a multiple of reasons, just emotionally and psychologically, do we do that to ourselves? But um, so if you if you already have this skill that you, I mean, does it is it really that hard to put together a case and like put up the facts of like why you should deserve this? So now that you've got that stuff, you should be going in prepared anyway. But then, how are you going to show up emotionally? That's what this helps people with is like that emotional final resonance that you need to get to. Because when you think about where you are and where you want to get to. So that's thinking. People have a vision. A lot of people have a vision for like, you know, you know where they are or where they want to get to. Like they're like, oh, I wish I was doing this or whatever it might be, whatever sort of, you know, dream they're building up in their own mind. But there's something about where they're at that they feel stuck. Well, thinking is the place that they're in right now. And they're also thinking about where they want, what they want to be doing. The bridge to make it is the emotional part, right? The bridge to action in human beings is emotion. There's been enough studies have been done on in the human brain, if you ever sever the tie between the emotional side and the thinking side, the rational side of the brain, um, Alzheimer's patients, Parkinson's patients, whatever, they cannot 
actually make a decision. They, they know that they want to eat a sandwich and they're hungry, but they actually can't make themselves a sandwich. It's done. Well, same thing goes with the way that we want to act daily. You know, we know that we can do stuff, but then we end up not going out and doing the stuff. Well, what, what's, the, what's the challenge there? It's resistance. It's this thing that sits in the middle. Alter egos help to build a bridge of that emotional self that can actually help make that happen for you to get out there and do it. Because what you do is you suspend your own disbelief for a moment in time that, you know what, it's not me going, it's not James Altucher going out there. It's Kevin O'Leary. He's going to go in there. And right. So, 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 and based on what I read in your book, the way I would approach it is, like you said, well, well, first off, I would probably watch a bunch of episodes of Shark Tank right. and Kevin O'Leary just yeah. to see what's his mannerisms, how does his voice sound, mm-hmm. how does he look at people, mm-hmm. you know, just because I want to have that persona. It's almost like yeah. I'm an actor. I want to be him. But really what's happening is the Kevin O'Leary part of me exactly. is, is coming out. Like exactly. this guy who's firm, who's got the numbers, and also I'm talking about your benefit. Like I yeah. might, and then I'll get the numbers ready and I'll say, listen, I probably brought you you know, X dollars of business this year. Yeah, I'm just now talking about having 12% of that instead of 10% of that. Mm-hmm. That seems fair for everybody. And I'd probably be willing to walk too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what you just said there is something you said is really important. It's the Kevin O'Leary part of you. See, like the, the, the mistake people make is um, they think that this would somehow be inauthentic. This is, has nothing to do with the idea of faking it till you making it. I mean, you know, as well as I do, the importance of a good message. Fake it till you make it. What a terrible message, right? It's, it already has the word fake in it. No one wants to be fake. This has nothing to do with being inauthentic. This is about actually drawing out this most authentic actual version of who you are because we're super multi-layered. I mean, who you think you are today and who you're going to be nine months from now is probably going to be a slightly different person. So are you being fake today because you're not that person nine months from now? Of course, that doesn't make sense. What you're tapping into is the only superpower that human beings really do have. The only thing that truly does separate us on this planet from other animals is our creative imagination. Our ability to tell stories in our own head, to build narrative, to create heavens from hell or hell from heaven. We have that capacity more than anyone or anything else. You know, Joseph Campbell talks about the hero's journey that we all go on. And an alter ego is simply tapping into this one superpower that we have to beat the ultimate villain that we have to face every single day, which is resistance. Whether it's coming in the form of fear, personal trauma from just stuff that happened to you in your past. I mean, that's kind of, that's my narrative that I had to overcome. Why? What was your... So, you know, when I was, um, you know, young kid, grew up on a big, big farm and ranch and... Um, Western Canada, outside of Medicine Hat, Alberta, and uh, I went away when you, I was, you grew up in Canada. Yeah, what street? <laughs> what no, street? <laughs> <laughs> there was no street. I was in the middle of nowhere. I can tell you that. Um, but uh, when I was twelve years old, I went away to a church camp, and while I was there, over the course of a couple of days, I was sexually assaulted by two men um, over the course of two days, and it ruined me on the inside. Like I went from being this. You know, I had the world by its tail, amazing parents, amazing family, you know, was an up and coming athlete and, you know, still kind of went on to do that. But that just wrecked me on the inside. And I kept that a secret for 31 years until literally just a year and a half ago. I finally, you know, I couldn't keep the volcano from erupting anymore. And I had little kids. How do you think it was showing up in your life before you? Oh, I mean, um, well, um, one of the one of the men had said to me during the kind of throughout that kind of incident was that um, uh, you know look at you no one's here to save you now so I just de- developed this kind of idea that I was always going to be on my own that no one really actually cared about me so I had you know multiple suicide attempts throughout the course of um, you know at four in in particular and you know never actually went through never actually obviously happened, but, um, you know, it just, my confidence, my, um, shame and guilt ruin and rule, sorry, rule a lot of people. Just that shame that people carry that guilt about whatever it might be, whatever that story is in people's head. Uh, and that's what stopped me. But that's actually why I got into doing mental toughness and, you know, peak performance stuff was I needed to get into finding mental game strategies because I just needed to survive. I did. I mean, if I didn't find some of these things, these tools that I started working with, then I wouldn't be here. 
100%. So what's the first time you kind of used one of these techniques to improve performance, then you realized, oh, you could also use this to help other people. Yeah. So specifically, I used it when I played football, you know, and I went on, I played college football, but I used it when I went on the football field. And sports for me was my salvation. It was the one time where I wasn't, you know, that, that Todd that, you know, was abused or whatever. Um, but then specifically, actually, when I started getting into business and I started, stopped um, managing restaurants and I started my business, but I was 21, I looked like I was 12. So I was so insecure about how young I looked and that, you know, kind of classic imposter syndrome stuff around people are going to find out that I don't have degrees on this. You know, who am I to go out there on stage and talk to people about mental game strategies when I haven't, you know, you know, I'm not 40 years old yet or just all these things. And yet I was already really good at helping young athletes. I wasn't going to work in pros yet. I was starting out with the group of people that I was qualified to work with at the price point that I was, because it was $75 for three sessions, you know, in-home visits, by the way. <laughs> and, um, but I was good. And, and I thought to my, I was just, I wasn't taking the action I needed to take. And then just one day I was just <clears throat> beating myself up and I'm like, wait a second, you used this alter ego of Geronimo on the football field. You went out there as this like tribe of Native American warriors. I was a huge buff and I still passionate about it. And um, why don't I use that? And then I thought to myself, well, Geronimo really doesn't work in business though. It's a little bit too aggressive. So, but fundamentally, I, I really just want to show up as like this kind of Superman version of myself in business. And, um, and that's what I did. I was like, wait a second, there's an idea. Superman had Clark Kent. Clark Kent wore glasses. Why don't I just flip it? When I put on glasses, I'll be the Superman version of myself in business. So I did. It was the late 90s. I went to Lens Crafters in West Edmonton Mall, which was the largest mall at the time. I lived in Edmonton. And I bought a pair of non-prescription glasses to do my reverse Superman. You know, Superman took off again to become, or put him on to become, uh, or put him on to become Clark Kent, the mild-mannered version, so he'd be accepted by society. And you made the interesting point in the book that Superman was the real him. Yeah. Clark Kent was just who he showed up. Yeah, showed up. To be accepted. Yeah. And I think we all do that. So we all kind of like have this persona that's the the role we play when we want to be accepted. Yeah. But that's different than the persona we want when we need to be not necessarily accepted, but we need to be peak performers. The accepted person and the peak performer are somewhat different. Exactly. I, I, I talk about in the book how all of us have these moments of impact in like our, the different areas of our life. I call them fields of play. And if you think about it, we all have these different stages and roles that we play, right? Like when I go home, I'm a dad to my three little kids. And when I'm in um, I'm, I'm business, I'm you know, the leader of my company and you know, coaching people. And then of course, I'm gonna be different when I'm with my friends. There's just elements of our personality that are being magnified. And then it's just, are they helping us or are they hurting us by not stepping into the best version that we could be? And sometimes it's hard to even imagine what that best version is. For me, it was when I was starting out in business. So I went and I bought a pair of glasses and that became my talisman, my totem, my, my artifact to step into that. And I, all of a sudden, enclosed myself in the qualities of the people that I admired. Joseph Campbell, Abraham Lincoln were a couple of them. Winston Churchill. Why? I wanted to be smart, decisive, and articulate. It's so funny because... Those are all obviously heroic personalities, and when you when you picture that these people are inside you, or that yeah. you're, um, you know, an alter ego of them, you can go into a situation and be super confident and wise and yeah. have the answers. It, it it reminds me in reverse of something I used to do. So I I've done a lot of public speaking, as have you, yeah. and um, uh, when I do public speaking, I very very slightly in. You can't even tell. The audience can't tell. I very slightly slur my words because <laughs> mm. if I if I do that, it's like my brain thinks I'm kind of slightly drunk, and <laughs> then I still have all my knowledge because I'm not yeah. drunk, but I have no I have inhibitions. Less inhibitions. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the drunken altercures that goes on stage. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's funny. I do I do lots of things because I get really scared to public speak. So yeah. I probably before a talk, I'll spend a good twenty four hours. Preparing, I'll do everything from singing songs mm-hmm. to watching great speeches mm-hmm. to watching c- comedy 
just to get all of those personas in yeah. full force when I when I talk. Yeah. Well, I mean, you had said it before about, you know, if you if you are picking up on the qualities of someone, the more and more that you can study them, the better that you're gonna get at um, embodying them when you go out there. I mean, a, an example for this was uh, in the book, I talk about this young uh, 12-year-old in the New York area here that I was mentoring a f- few years ago, baseball player, uh, he was actually 13 at the time and was always just really good. And he loved baseball, like l- just lived it every single day. But he was one of those kids that he hit puberty way later than everyone else. And so these kids started growing up and he was going up to the batter's box and he came home from a, a tournament in Atlanta, Georgia. And he's like on the phone with me and he was kind of, and he was really slumping and it didn't make any sense because he was always a really great confident kid, but it wasn't showing anymore. And he's like, oh, Mr. Herman, you should have seen, there's, there's a guy on the line, he had a mustache, he had a mustache, he was huge. And then it clicked with me. I'm like, oh, wait a second he is starting to place himself on the lower rung of the ladder because all these other kids are bigger than him. So he thinks size matters. And in baseball, like most sport really, I mean, technique matters a ton. And so I said to him like, is that what you're thinking now when you're going up to the plate? How much bigger everyone else is than you? And he's like, all the time. And I said, okay, do you know who Paul Bunyan is? And he's like, no. I'm like, all right, here's your homework. I need you to go and research and find out as much as you can about Paul Bunyan. I want you to call me tomorrow at four o'clock after school. And he's like, oh, is our call done? And I'm like, yeah, it's done. He's like, you're not going to coach me? And I'm like, I just did. See you tomorrow. So he calls me back the next day and he was so excited because told, told me all about how Paul Bunyan's 100 feet tall. He used to help the settlers cross America and protect them. He could take uh uh, an entire redwood tree down with one swing of his ax. He was amazing. And I said, and so he had all this detail about who this person was. And I'm like, how do you think you would hit the ball when you're in the batter's box if you went up as Paul Bunyan? And he's like, oh, it would be like, I wouldn't even be able to see where it lands. It would go so far. I'm like, do you, would you even be thinking the thought of how big that kid is on the mound that has the mustache? He's like, well, no, because... I'm so much bigger than him. And I've even got a beard because Paul Bunyan has this big beard. And I'm like, there's no, and he, his entire, because we were on a Skype call, his entire state changed because he was now enclothing his mind in this idea of being Paul Bunyan. So that's what we did. Um, and he went out and he got a piece of flannel cloth because Paul Bunyan wears flannel. And he tucked that into his pocket of his uh, baseball pants. And that was his totem to be Paul Bunyan. And he would put it in his pocket when he would go out to the batter's box and his dad called me about a week and a half later and he's like, I have no idea what you said to him, but he's gone 23 for 23 at the plate. That's amazing. And he's smashing home runs consistently. And, uh, and I mean, th- those are some of my favorite wins because when you can hit a kid that young and get them to really embrace, the, the, like this imagination is so powerful for you. So there's three factors that were in there. One is he had the technique. Yeah. You knew that. He was getting sidetracked by some narrative that yeah. he assumed was true but was not. Yeah. He um he did the research on Paul Bunyan. You came yeah. up with a persona that that worked. Uh and there was a there's a talisman like aspect. Like he had yeah. to wear the flannel shirt. Like you need to yeah. do what, what, what that's a very primal thing too. Like people wear, yeah. you know necklaces and or they have their lucky charm or yeah. whatever or, or what's 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 the talisman part of this yeah so it taps into a psychological phenomenon that we have as human beings uh called enclosed cognition which is that we will attach meaning to the things that other people wear or that are in our environment and it means something to us and so if you put on a policeman's uniform you're most likely going to automatically start to enclose your actions, enclose cognition, cognitively start to act through what you think the behaviors are of a policeman. You're probably gonna rock with, because it's been shown, you're probably gonna walk with a more erect back, stand straight up. Probably talk deeper. Talk deeper, heads up, walk more proudly, chest out kind of thing. You're gonna be scanning, people's heads just start swiveling. You start looking around you, so your level of environmental awareness goes up. Um, and there's a great study that was done at the Kellogg School of Management where they brought a bunch of students into a room 
and they got them to uh, look at a puzzle that had the word of a color, and then but it was colored differently. So the word is green, but it's done in red, and then the color says blue, but it's yellow, and it's because the brain perceives color, the actual color first before the actual word itself. And what you need to do is go through this entire list of words and try and say the word of the color. And it's actually quite difficult to do mm-hmm. it. And uh, so they tracked their mistakes, how quickly they do it, did it, and, and their level of attention. So those, those students leave the room and they bring in another group of students and they are gonna do the same puzzle or the same kind of test, except this time they hand them a white coat uh, and they tell them it's a painter's coat. And so they put on the painter's coat and they do the whole test. And then they bring in another group of kids um, individually and they hand them the same white coat, except this time they tell them it's a lab coat or a doctor's coat and they do it. Well, the difference between the people who had the painter's coat and the um, plain clothes, zero difference. Hmm. No difference whatsoever. But the people who had the lab coat or doctor's coat on, they were able to do the test in less than half the time and they made less than half the mistakes. So their level of attention, accuracy, and their careful nature went way up. Why? Because they were enclosing themselves in the idea of what it means to, to, to someone who's a lab technician or a doctor, because those people are more careful, they're more detail-oriented. But the people who had the painter's coat on, what you're tapping into there is creativity and um, expressiveness. That doesn't help you with that specific task. This gets back to what I talk about in the book, why it's so important that we build you know, the identity of who we want to show up contextually. It's for that one single field of play that's out there. It's not for our entire life. That's extraordinarily difficult to do. And it's actually not very healthy to do as well. And you know, one of the core foundations of the psychology movement over the last 70 years was that they always felt like the most healthy human being was someone who had a single self, a single identity. That's now been proven to be wrong. It's actually the people who have multiple selves where it's not multiple, dis, not multiple personality disorder, it's multiple selves where they, they know that the self I am when I'm with my family is of course different than the self I take with me to work. It's, it's so funny because as you're saying this, I could think of so many different instances where I had to yeah. use these techniques, but you're formalizing them in this book because you had to basically teach them to, to people. Yeah. But- um, what what do you mean by uh, uh, people thought you had to have a single self though? Like what does what does that mean? Well, they always felt that? like you know um, people like that's like the expression "just be yourself." Just like, what be does that yourself. Mean? Exactly. What does that mean? Just, it, just be yourself means in context to the field that you're standing on, right? That, that's that's where people have gotten it wrong for the longest time. And, and you know, I talked about this before a little bit, where it's one of my great frustrations about the personal development and self help world or leadership world is that. A lot of the books that have been written have been written by people who are researchers and they haven't been doing the actual work with people. Like I, for 22 years, have been paid by working with people one-on-one. And if I give you a strategy today, James, and you come back a week later, we're face-to-face and you can tell me straight up if it's full of crap, if it's not working for you um, for whatever reason. And we got to refine that then. But in the context of research, when people are looking at groups of people, it's very easy for really pie-eyed ideas to hide in there because you've got group think that happens. So all it takes is one person to go, yeah, yeah, it worked for me. And all they're trying to do is maybe please the person who just, and then someone else goes, yeah, yeah, it worked for me too. Totally, it worked for me too. I mean, I would say when we talked about this, 95% or more of the self-help industry is just yeah, BS. It's garbage. Or, or I think it's like hidden versions of 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 this in the sense that like I remember there's one publishing house where the the best selling author always wrote about angels and um you know I I I'm not being judgmental I think her readers were helped because maybe they mm-hmm. said for different situations these different yeah. angels they're going to channel and that's going to be their alter egos yeah. who knows yeah who knows and she would sell cards she would sell calendars yeah. and books and clothes yeah. and and we both know that I mean a lot of the reasons why some people write books is because it's a great marketing device. I mean, I'm 22 years in. If I was gonna write this book for that reason, I would have done it 15, 16 years ago when I started actually using this thing. Um, but I needed to refine it. I needed to understand it better. And um, 
whatnot. But that that idea of like, you know, that single self of just be yourself. No, you're always in context. It's like, I want to be the best self in that moment when I'm with my kids. So to use me as an example, you know, all day long for eight to 10 hours when I'm working, I am working with the people that are listening, you know, just people that are ambitious. They want, they want to strive for, uh, to do important things in their lives and make an impact and all the things that they want to go and do. And part of that process is I need to challenge people to move past whatever that resistance is by giving them really good tools. So when I go home though at night, the last thing my three little kids that are six and under want is a challenging dad, right? The challenging personality that comes out of me. So while I use those glasses in business and use those glasses to get to that self that was actually gonna be decisive and articulate and confident, that's not who my kids want. They want fun, playful, you know, get on the ground and you know, wrestle around with them, dad. Um, but when you're dealing with personal trauma or stuff in the past, it's very easy for someone to get triggered and then fall into a self that you don't like in that moment. And nothing's worse than somehow hurting your kids' feelings in some way. And I would come home and I didn't step out of that dad or that, um, uh, that sort of challenging personality. And I was challenging my kids too much. And my, my, my middle daughter, in, in particular, Sophie, she's got this fantastic emotional bandwidth where she can have fantastic highs and she's got some amazing tantrums that she can get into. And, um, and when she's having that tantrum, I would meet her force with my force of, you know, you know, role-playing dad and I'm bigger than, and you're gonna calm down right now kind of thing. And that never worked. And then I caught myself in that moment doing that. And I was like, what are you doing? Like you, you haven't, you haven't been specific with yourself of how you want to show up. And so I immediately, I knew who I wanted to be and how I wanted to show up. I wanted to show up more like Mr. Rogers in that moment where he would bring that gentle self. And the very next time that Sophie had that tantrum, that's who I called on to be. And what, do we, what would he do? He would get down on one knee right away. He would reach out, he'd bring her in and he would hug her. Now, all the while, I am absolutely raging on the inside. But what happens? What would normally be a 12 minute tantrum melted away in eight seconds. I hugged her and then she was off like any little kid going about her business. And, and I'm, you're sitting there as a parent going, what was that all about? <laughs> like, where did that emotion come from? But she was fine, she was off. And it was just, it's, it's so helpful to think of life that way instead of just this single version of you. No, there's multiple ways that you can be successful. And for someone that's going through some challenging stuff, what it did for me was it brought an element of playfulness to life now all of a sudden as well. So we but can do this. It brings up the kind of philosophical question and maybe this, we don't have to get into it, but who is the, the real self? If like basically yeah. for every situation, you bring on a different uh, sort of peak persona, um, who's the real you kind of directing things in the middle? Yeah, well, I think that that, answer isn't something that I'm necessarily super qualified for. But what I can say is what I do know about human beings is that what I do know is that you are a fantastically creative self and that you can in any moment choose who and what can show up in that moment, right? And whether you are doing it empowered by it yourself or whether you're using the power of another idea a bear, <laughs> a lion, a tiger. You know, I talk about how one of the my, my clients in there uses a deer as her alter ego to stand in her presence because she's someone who is a fantastic, nice, kind person, but she lets people walk all over her. And so she's inspired by a deer who stands its ground with its antlers down and is going to fight off a grizzly bear. What, what are situations where you've been um, surprised by the persona and then how it works? Like, well, I mean, the first story I tell in the book is probably the most surprising one where we've kind of talked about Bo Jackson, where when I was speaking down in Atlanta and I'm in the green room waiting to go on stage and then he walks in. And if you don't know Bo Jackson, Bo is you know, an absolute physical specimen. He's the only athlete to be an all-star in two different major North American sports, the National Football League and the Major Leagues Baseball. And, um, and so if you're in sport like I was and am, you know who he is and he walks in and he walks straight over to me. And in my head, I'm like, wow, that's Bo Jackson. I played him on Nintendo as a kid. <laughs> and uh, he comes over, he says, hi, I'm Bo Jackson. I'm like, yeah, I know who you are. 
Um, I used to play you on Tecmo Bowl a lot. You won me a lot of games. And he just laughed and he said, that's funny. I'm, uh, you're not the first to say that. Are you speaking? And I said, yeah, I'm going up next. And uh, he's like, oh, what are you going to talk about with uh, the coaches and the kids? And I said, oh, I'm going to talk about the mental game, but specifically how to use um, alter egos and secret identities to really get the best out of yourself out there. So you're um, uh, taking all of your skills and capabilities onto the field. And he looked at me, kind of got this like super quizzical look on his face and he goes, Bo Jackson never played it down in football his entire life. Hmm. And I'm like, interesting. And he just went on and said that if you knew him at a young age, he was an angry kid and he got into a lot of trouble, would take unnecessary penalties and um, wasn't all that coachable. But one night he was watching a movie and he saw this character come on the screen that was cold, calculating, methodical, um, and unemotional. And he thought to himself, well, why don't I take that on the football field? because then I wouldn't be angry anymore and get myself into trouble. And it was Jason from Friday the 13th, which sounds crazy to people who are like, an angry kid takes this serial killer out there. But that's the power of this is like, everyone has their own takeaways with the story that they're watching or they're inspired by. So you don't know who someone alter ego could be. I've got clients who have this massive reverence for Darth Vader, not because of you know his you know ruling of the universe or whatever, or the galaxy, it's just, his presence where he didn't care, his mastery of the force even and things like that. Um, so his was, his was a unique one. Um, I would say the character or the person that I talked about earlier, her resonance with a deer, right? Cause people are gonna think they're gonna go for an animal, they're gonna go with a lion. But for her, she's like, I don't feel like I'm a lion person on the inside. Like I wanna honor the fact that I am kind and kind of this kind of graceful person and a deer and a, a, like a buck that fights off bears, that sounds more like me. And when you think about, you know, like National Geographic, they kind of get it wrong sometimes because uh, cougars and bears don't win that fight with a with a with a buck all the time. Bucks bucks will win too in nature, and uh, and so she's inspired by that. Um, uh, you know, Kobe Bryant's Black Mamba. You know, interesting. Like I talk about in the book, where where he came to the conclusion that that was going to be his. Because uh, he was coming through a very, very hard time, and he felt like it was affecting him on the inside as well. And so he saw the Black Mamba in the movie Kill Bill, and that's when he was inspired by it. And then he did exactly like you were talking about before. He went out, and he probably has more knowledge of what a Black Mamba can do and its biology than most biologists do. He became a real student of what a Black Mamba could do, and he really personified that when he went out onto the court. And um, other characters. Uh, that people have used someone like um, uh, a client of mine who speaks a lot, nervous as heck. He stepped into that um, surfer uh, god character that The Rock plays in the movie Moana, hmm. Big Wave. He called it, and Big Wave. Uh, he's he's a Pacific Islander as well. Just completely resonated with it. And he said that when he went out and did his first talk with it, he's like, I can't even, I can't even tell you what I said on stage. Um, all I know is I ended up making a whole bunch of money from it because um, he just it let him just fall completely into a almost a zone or a flow state. So there's no there's no end to the types of you know characters or ideas that people jump into with this stuff. Have you ever worked with like traders at hedge funds? Or? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I've got one here in town that. He, um, his family came from, he's a wealthy guy. His family, his grandma came over from, uh, you know, Europe right after the Holocaust, classic um, single mother. Her husband died, she brought her four children over. Um, grew up in the uh, Lower East Side, kind of in a bit of the slums and the tenement buildings that were down there, but raised four really successful kids, doctors, real estate, um, professor, and uh, my client is the son of one of them, and he's a successful uh, trader, um, wealth manager on Wall Street. And um, he started getting into leadership positions where he was a very hard-charging person, a person, you know, very ambitious. But when it came to dealing with people, he wasn't all that well-equipped. Um, and so when we were talking about that, um, I asked him about, because he brought up his grandma, and his entire state changed when he started talking about his grandmother. I'm like, oh, okay, there you go. Like, I'm looking. I'm when I'm working with someone, when I'm like, what's resonating with this person? Asking them, and you know, I, I wasn't gonna have to go very far with his grandma to find out, you know, mm -hmm. what it was about her. And he just told the story about her and unpacked it, and you know, just 
her presence. She was she was very tough, but everybody listened and loved her. Like she had both respect and um, and and reverence and love and all this. And uh, and so I said, well, what about those moments where you need to really lead your company and lead your people? That why don't you step into your grandma in that mm-hmm. moment? So he has a frame of her that he has on his desk and he has it slightly askew. It doesn't quite face him, but when he needs to switch that on, he reaches over and he just flicks it. And it's just, we're just trying to try trying to create a trigger. And that's when, you know, he steps into his grandma. And the key thing about this, just to, an, an, an idea for people to have is when I was using this, when I played football, I talk about having a mental movie theater where I'd go into my own mind and I had this specific room um, and there's two doors at the end and the Native American tribe would come in led by Geronimo. And then on the other side came in Ronnie Lott and Walter Payton, two hall of fame football players. Both of them were like heroes to me, especially Walter. And um, Walter would be carrying five cards with him and they would all approach me. um, And Walter would hand me the five cards in my mind. And he would say, here you go. You get to take a, uh, a piece of each of us out onto that field, but don't for one second dishonor our memory Hmm. and our character by not showing up like we would out there. And I would take those five cards where there's three um, trading cards of Walter Payton and two of Ronnie Lott. I'd put one of Walter's in my head because I wanted to think like him out there. I'd take Ronnie Lott's, who was this devastating hitter from the San Francisco 49ers, and I'd stuff them underneath my shoulder pads. And I took two of Walter's and I put them inside of my thigh pads. And that's how, because I wanted to run like him. And, uh, but I took the spirit of the, um, the kind of Native American tribe, you know, in my heart kind of thing. And did you feel, um, I mean, a lot of this is measurable. Did you feel like there was a before and after? Oh, it wasn't even close, James. I mean, I was, I was six feet and 156 pounds. There was no way that I was supposed to be like, you know, a devastating hitter. And I'm not, I'm not going to build up a story out there, folks, that I was like this, like phenom of an athlete. I was definitely really good in my small little area of Alberta, Canada, but I played way bigger than what my size was. In fact, I broke uh, two helmets, hmm. you know, cracked down the middle. One, I shattered a face mask of my own um, from hitting people. I hit people way harder than I should because Todd did not go on the field. Those, uh, that, that alter ego went on the field for me. So my point is, is getting back to, um, uh, sorry, who were we just talking about? Um, you. Well, I was talking about me, but when, oh, the idea is, is that when you, when you step in and you embody that other person really on the idea. And so my client, he would, he was not going to not, he was not going to defy his grandmother's character and not treat and treat people how he normally would. Cause he was, he was kind of like me with that challenger personality. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden you get to the point where what Cary Grant talks about, Cary Grant, the Hollywood golden era actor, he had this great quote at the end of his career where he said, um, I pretended to be somebody I wanted to be, or I became that person. But at some point in time, we met. Hmm. And he was, um, you know, British actor, dealt with depression all of his life. Very concerned about um, how other people thought of him, and he really wanted to like own the skin of someone who was charismatic, and thoughtful, and you know, um, uh, you know, just carried himself well, but carried himself because that's just who he was, not because he was trying to play that part. And, um, and that was what his quote was, what he was saying was, I became that person, it so was me. And who do you think he channeled? Do you think he channeled anybody specifically? I, I don't know, because I, that, you know, if, if he was around, I would definitely ask him and find that out. But if you think about that quote, and it's useful for people to think that if there's a two circle Venn diagram, there's, there's who you are right now, and maybe who you want to become, or, or what you want to be happening right now. And they're not quite overlapped at any point, at, at this point for you. And, and maybe using an alter ego can be the one thing that brings those two together. And then what happened to me is I was sitting at my desk one day, probably about eight months into really stepping into that super Richard version, because my first name is Richard. So that's what I called myself when I was in business. I'm a super Richard. I want to put on those glasses. And one day I didn't have my glasses on and I was sitting down, but I was doing the things I needed to do. I was making the calls. I felt really confident. So I had become the person that I wanted to be. So the only thing I change about his quote is I activated the person that I wanted to be or he became me, but we met at some point in time. And the same thing goes for anyone who taps into this. Again, this isn't like some revolutionary idea. 
by any stretch. I didn't invent alter egos. Cicero named them back in 44 BC and he called them the other I or trusted friend. And I think that's a really useful idea for people to think about because we all need allies. We, I mean, you as a friend, that's helpful to me. Um, me as a friend to you, whatever I can do for you. But for a lot of people, all of us, in fact, it's most helpful if we have a trusted ally inside our mind between the six inches of our ears. Um, the reason a lot of this resonates with me so much is that let's say before I write, I always make sure I read for about one or two hours just because, and I pick very, I'm very selective about who I read before I write. So mm -hmm. given that I know what kind of thing I'm going to write, I'll read authors who write in that style that yeah. I admire. So yeah. I won't necessarily write exactly like them, but I'll kind of channel their style a little yeah. bit. And same thing for comedy. I'll watch, if I'm doing comedy at like nine o'clock, starting from about four or five o'clock, I'm just watching not only comedy, but only the comedians who I want to be like mm -hmm. on that evening. Mm -hmm. And literally, and then usually the set before I'm supposed to go up, I'll go in the hallway and I'll watch again those comedians like right before I'm going to go on. Yeah. So it's that, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's basically the same technique. Hundred percent, and and I think it works. Yeah. So because like I I am able to, you know, the great the great thing about a great comedian is that they usually really seem like they don't. Part of their skill is they don't seem to care what the audience thinks, yeah. and that's what makes them so. Yeah. You know, successful is that it seems like the party is where they're at on the stage, not where the audience is. They they take control. Yeah, so that's the, a good it's way. Very to useful. It. Yeah, absolutely. I I have a um set of meetings coming up in a couple of weeks and I'm trying to figure out the persona I want to have mm -hmm. going into those meetings. I'm pitching uh, an idea in Hollywood. Yeah. And uh, I'm still trying to figure out exactly the persona I want to be. The funny thing is the last time I was in meetings like that, I didn't care at all. Yeah. So I was just great. And like, how did it, yeah, and it, yeah, it went great. Yeah, and it, it was to the point where, because I just thought everything there was not... Who who knew? I didn't know what was going to happen. I was just playing. It was just for me. Yeah. It was like a game. But now I actually want this to happen. Yeah. So I can feel a little nervousness entering there. So I have to sort of start figuring out the the persona I want to I want to appear as. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll do a coaching session before you go out there. Then. Yeah, that could be. <laughs> um. So so, Todd Herman, this is such a valuable book. Uh, the Alter Ego Effect: The Power of Secret Identities to Transform Your Life. Uh, and the reason. The reason I could say it's powerful is that I've just used this in so many areas of my life, mm -hmm. and I know this technique works. And I agree with you. I don't, you know, there's all these article after article after article, like, you know, make your bed in the morning, do this, do that, eat, yeah, eat carbs, don't eat carbs, do do push-ups, don't do push-ups, and it's important, of course, to be healthy. Like you say, you have to have the technical skills all around to to be able to succeed. But I I think. This alter ego idea is what pushes pushes someone over the top. Well, I mean, I've seen it happen for so many years. Um, there's enough stories in there to show that throughout history, it's been used by extremely successful people. That others have maybe again grass is greener on the other side. Just thought that they just naturally were that that way, and yet they weren't. They they used this idea that we use when we were all kids to step into our creative imagination to you know try on different ideas to see. And find out who you really are. I think it's a constantly evolving story more than anything else. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you one one story. So uh, this is two thousand five. So it was fourteen years ago. It was early two thousand five. I was running a, a fund of hedge funds. So maybe it was early. Yeah, it was early two thousand five. And we, were our biggest investor. He had to pull out all of his money, so there was a good chance we could go out of business. Yeah. So I was scared, scared to death. Yeah. Uh, and so I bought all these books, like the Tao of Star Wars, and all these books about Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And I watched all six movies twice over. Uh, and I really kind of, in my head, sort of gave myself over to the idea that there was such a thing as as the Force, and I was just going to surrender to whatever. Was best for the business, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I don't know, I don't know exactly how it worked, but it worked. That suddenly, I was much more creative, finding all the possible ways to yeah. uh, get more money in the business and keep it alive, and and it worked. We stayed in business. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
I mean, Einstein said it, you know, our imagination is, our creative imagination is far more powerful than, you know, our critical thinking and our knowledge. So um, I'm excited to get it out. I know it's going to make a difference for people. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast, The Alter Ego Effect. Uh, have you hit the best auto list yet? Um, we'll find out in a day, but it looks like we will yet. Oh, great. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks, man. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Todd. You bet. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.